It seems that a couple of weeks ago, strep A panic was everywhere. You'll likely have seen it on the news, as well as a number of national alerts cascaded around your emails. But what actually is it? Why all of a sudden this interest in the disease? What symptoms should we be looking out for? And how, if at all, should we be adjusting our practice? Well, this month we take a look at all that and more. So, when it comes to streptococcus, you won't streptococ up. Ambulance general broadcast, any vehicles available to book on or come clear for an outstanding category 1 emergency. So, hello and welcome to General Broadcast. My name's Josh. And I'm Simon. And this week it's just the two of us and we're taking a look at Strep A and Scarlet Fever. Simon, as if we needed to say, why are we taking a look at that this month? So, um, yeah, I think I, I asked for this one, didn't I? Because it's a bit of a, uh, excuse the pun, hot topic at the moment. Been in the media a lot. There is more cases this year than uh, at the same kind of periods in, in other years. So it seems to be on the rise it's causing quite a lot of parental concern and it's kind of something that we see semi-regularly but we just need to be really on the ball with it at the moment given the uh, prevalence and so you're hearing a, a lot of terms strep egg scarlet fever thrown around at the minute so we thought it'd be a, uh, a good opportunity to take a bit of a better look at what all that conversation is about so let's get started So we'll talk a bit about the pathophysiology and the difference between strep throat and scarlet fever in a second. But uh, let's take a, a little look at the numbers. So scarlet fever is what's called a notifiable disease. So if health providers have a positive swab for scarlet fever, they have to notify NHS England of, of that number so that they're able to keep track of the numbers of cases and, and, and plot uh, any any particularly high local outbreaks and we tend to have high and low seasons of the numbers so the last high season that we had was in 2017 and within that year between September and December there were 4,672 reported cases of scarlet fever. Now to put that into perspective against this year between the start of September of this year and Christmas Day. So we're recording this in December, so the numbers might have changed slightly. But as of Christmas Day, within a similar time period, there were 33,836 notifications of scarlet fever. So a considerable n jump in the numbers that we're seeing. And as you might expect, with increased cases of strep A infections, there are increased complications of the disease. So invasive group A streptococcus, or IGAS as it's often termed, we're seeing a far greater number of this complicated end of the disease. So for, for reference between the same time period this year that I've just described in children ages one to four, we've seen 151 cases of IGAS. That's compared to 194 across an entire year within the 27 to 2018 time period. So we definitely appear to have uh, a steeper curve to the number of infections that we're seeing and sadly that also means that we're seeing an increased number in deaths so again so far in the in the time period that i just described september to december this year there's been 
25 children under 18 that have sadly died in England. And this compares to just 27 between the entire 2017 and 2018 season, as it's termed, for strep A. So numbers that definitely appear to be on the rise. There's there's a greater chance that we're going to encounter some form of strep A infection or possibly the severe, more severe ends of the disease. And so uh, that's why it's important that we have a, a better understanding and a deeper look at exactly what these infections look like and how we can recognise it. And to compound that, this episode's being released in January. So children will just be going back to school. Well, there's various studies that show that spikes in this disease are associated with winter weather and school being in session. So just as schools are coming back after this Christmas break, we potentially will see an increase in numbers and, and there's a, a greater chance that uh, we're going to be called to one of these patients. So Simon, do you want to talk to us about the pathophysiology of the disease? Talk to us about uh, what strep A is, what type of infections it can cause, and then what scarlet fever is. So I think this is where um, some people get confused because there's a lot of terms being thrown around, you know, group A strep, strep throat, scarlet fever, eye gas, as we just alluded to. And actually, I think if we have a basic understanding of uh, the pathophysiology, it can help. So group A strep, also known as streptococcus pyogenes, is a species of beta hemolytic gram-positive bacteria that is responsible for a wide range of infections that can affect adults, but we more commonly associate them with childhood infections. And it's something that people who work in primary, urgent and emergency care see really regularly. The most common one that most people will know of these are strep throat pharyngitis or tonsillitis. The most commonly seen infections from this and the ones that most people in primary, urgent and emergency care will have come across is strep throat, which causes a pharyngitis or tonsillitis. We also need to be aware of scarlet fever. However, these aren't the only conditions that group A strep can cause. In fact, the bacteria can invade the lungs, which results in a pneumonia. It can infect the skin, causing cellulitis or erysipelas which is a superficial skin layer infection, so like the upper dermis is infected, whereas in a cellulitis it's a much deeper infection of the lower dermal layers and subcutaneous fat. It can also cause what we see the yellow crusty lesions of impetigo. More worryingly, it can cause nastier skin infections such as necrotizing fasciitis or toxic shock syndrome. On occasions, this is rare, but it can pass into the bloodstream and cause a bacteremia, and this is when we start to think about our invasive group A strep or eye gas infections. So Simon, is, is eye gas a collection for a term of complications associated with strep A? So eye gas, which we've already said is invasive group A streptococcal infection, is basically defined as any infection with a group A strep where it's infected what should normally be a sterile body site. This could be a streptococcal toxic shock syndrome that presents with multi-organ failure. It could be the neck fash that we kind of just discussed. But it can also be uh, the bacteremia in the bloodstream where we can't find a focus for any other infections such as meningitis. And this can make children really sick with a severe septic and septic shock type picture. And it's these infections is what is resulting in the deaths in children. And, and we should probably just pick up on that point, Simon, that uh, you could be forgiven for the way that this is all talked about, for thinking that this is something that 
only affects kids or something that we only have to have an element of suspicion in for children. It does predominantly affect children because they've got underdeveloped immune systems. And generally, as we get older, we've got uh, a better ability to stave off these infections and stop them becoming particularly problematic and, and developed. But it's probably just worth saying that this isn't only something to consider in kids. So yeah, that's correct. And that's it's more common in children when we see these nasty complications of these infections. Um, I think what we should predominantly focus on is the more common presentations of uh, strep throat and scarlet fever, because these are the ones that practitioners and, and paramedics are most likely to come across. We're already quite adept at recognising really sick children and recognising sepsis. So I think most people will see a really poorly child with who might have uh, an eye gas infection. So let's focus on you know how we can differentiate and manage the strep throat and the scarlet fever. Yeah, because if you if you stick with your spotting the sick child and your nice paediatric traffic light tools, you stand a good chance of, of picking up these severe eye gas infections, don't you? Because ultimately, it's, it's going to be a sick kid. So group A strep most commonly colonizes the throat mucosa, which is why we associate with pharyngitis. However, in the absence of pharyngitis, it can still enter the body through wounds or burns. So if you have a patient with group A strep symptoms who doesn't have the pharyngitis symptoms, then just think, is, is there another avenue this infection may have entered the body? Now we've thought about some of the terms, let's have a look at the history and examination findings that we might find with, firstly, a strep throat, and then moving into the development of scarlet fever. So by its very name, uh, we've got an infection. So the first symptom is going to be fever. So we define a fever as any temperature over 38 degrees. Normally, this is the first symptom that develops along with flu-like symptoms. Commonly, we get pharyngitis and a sore throat. And these are the cardinal symptoms of a strep throat infection. So when we look in the mouth, it's going to be uh, erythemic. We might see some... Uh, small particular spots on the soft and hard palate we might also see uh, inflamed tonsils and kind of pus and exudate of white you know white spots and white sluffiness on those tonsils moving down to the neck we're going to have a lymphadenopathy which is going to be normally in the anterior chain so we're going to have small raised but tender lymph nodes so far, Simon, that sounds like a generic sore throat. How how are we going to tell the difference between a likely strep A and a likely viral throat infection? So that's a great question. So it can be challenging to differentiate and we're not always going to get it right. So symptoms that we would associate more likely with viral illness uh, would be if there was a dry cough, if we had coryza, which is a runny nose, and if we had things like conjunctivitis, or if the onset of symptoms was kind of mild to moderate and slow. So strep A by its very nature is quite quick to give you a fever. Okay, fine. So inflamed purulent tonsils, quite severely bilaterally inflamed with a fever and a rapid onset, we're going to be thinking strep A, whereas if it's a slower onset combined with a cough or, or sort of runny nose and, and conjunctivitis with, without 
those very severely inflamed tonsils uh maybe just a red back of the throat we might think it's slightly more viral that that's that's really interesting it'd be really good wouldn't it if there was some system or some sort of score that we could use to help calculate and, and direct this part of the assessment wouldn't it yeah, indeed. We do like a clinical decision tool, don't we, to, to help us make these decisions. And luckily there is. There's there's two, actually. So traditionally we would have used the Centaur score, which is advocated by NICE, but also advocated by NICE and is currently what most people use is the fever pain score. This is a set of five questions, some history, some physical examination, which guides us more towards the chances of this being more likely a viral pharyngitis and a viral infection or more likely to be a strep and throat infection so the criteria for this are and we've kind of covered these already fever in the past 24 hours so that is a fever kind of of, of rapid onset that um, has been present for the past 24 hours an absence of cough or coryza so basically we don't want if there is no dry cough and there is no runny nose that makes a strep throat infection more likely if there is cough and there is coryza that decreases the chance of it being um, bacterial and more likely to be viral this is the one that i always struggled a little bit with symptom onset of equal to or under three days so this effectively means that the patient has presented relatively early in their illness because it's kind of reached maximal severity and it's quite severe whereas as i said before if it's kind of slow onset and you know just a little bit sore there's a bit of cough with it it's much more likely to be a viral illness whereas group a strep invades the mucosa of the throat quickly and it causes symptoms rapidly so if they present kind of early in the illness it's much more likely to be something uh, like a group a strep Then we move on to the physical examination findings, which is your purulent tonsils. So that's kind of what we talked about. So the pus and exudate, so white slough all over the tonsils. And if there's severe tonsillar inflammation. Now, sometimes what I do is I use parents to guide me to look at a child's tonsils because some children, especially if they get tonsillitis semi-regularly, can have like chronically inflamed tonsils or some kids just have enlarged tonsils anyway. So I kind of sometimes go, you know, does that look a lot larger to you? Because a lot of parents do look in their child's throat. Not all do, but if they do, it's a useful uh, kind of guide as to, you know, because I've had parents go, no, they look normal. Um, And it kind of then helps you answer that question. Obviously, if the parents don't know, then you just have to kind of base it upon your clinical judgment. So good scoring system to use to help you guide whether this is more likely to be a strep throat or a viral throat infection. Now, traditionally, what we would do is if there was low risk, then we would treat it as a viral illness and give supportive measures. If it was moderate risk, then we would consider a delayed prescription where we would give a parent a prescription on an FP10 of antibiotics and say, don't start these unless symptoms persist and they're not getting better over the next couple of days. Or if it was high risk, we would give um, an antibiotic prescription there and then. I think currently what a lot of my colleagues are doing is that we have moved that middle category into give antibiotics just because of this higher incidence at the moment of strep throat and scarlet fever because of these higher strep A infections. 
you know, that's again some clinical judgment, but I'm hoping that the purpose of what people will get out of this is that they will just identify there's a risk for those symptoms and refer that person to an appropriate practitioner or GP or urgent care center that will be able to then reevaluate and consider the need for antibiotics. Okay, so that's the sore throat and the strep throat bit that you've been talking about. What's scarlet fever then? How does that play into the mix? So scarlet fever, while technically is a separate condition, it's kind of could be considered to be a bit of a continuum. So scarlet fever is basically the above mentioned symptoms, fever, pharyngitis and sore throat, lymphadenopathy. And, um, you know, we're thinking it's more likely to be a bacterial infection as opposed to viral. Plus then the specific symptoms that make this scarlet fever is a diffuse erythematous, so that's red macular papular rash, which has a sandpaper-like texture when you rub your hands over it, which starts on the chest and upper abdomen, and then it rapidly spreads to the face and the extremities and is has areas of high kind of density around the neck, axillary, and groin. On Caucasian patients, the rash is very red. However, on darker skin patients, the rash can be more subtle in appearance, but it still has that sandpaper-like texture. I guess that's another really important point, isn't it, for making sure, particularly in children, that we completely expose them down so we're having a good look at their skin and uh, you, you're getting your hands on, on your patient so that you can hopefully feel that, 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 that tactile difference. And again, in children, I guess this is something that the parents are probably going to flag up to you. It's something that they're probably going to notice is a, an abnormal texture to their child's skin. Yeah, 100%. We, we we need to be exposing and examining children. We've still got an entire rest of our assessment to do. We should be you know, listening to the chest to make sure this hasn't spread to the chest as a, as a pneumonia. We need to be feeding their tummies. We need to be looking at skin everywhere, feeling their peripheral temperature. You know, like we would examine every child as per like spotting the sick child. And the other reason it's really important is to make sure that we see the rash in its entirety because there's going to be other features of scarlet fever that we can look for if we expose the child a bit more so some of these other things are the rash on the face has a what we call perioral sparing which is basically around the mouth we get this normal skin colored halo around the mouth whereas actually the cheeks themselves will have the really vivid rash spread on them and be quite obvious but the area around the mouth is is kind of just left its normal color So we call that perioral sparing. If we get a child to poke the tongue out, then the tongue in the early stages is covered in a white slough. But then this uh, desquamates, which means it comes off in flakes or peels off. And that leaves a bright, erythemic and really inflamed looking tongue with prominent papillae, which is said to resemble a strawberry. So we teach parents it looks like a strawberry tongue. We may then... As we expose the child, if we look in kind of skin fold areas, so the neck, the antecubital fossa and the groin areas, we might see something called pastia lines, which are kind of erythematous, red looking lines, um, which go through these areas. And they're, they're quite obvious when you see them. But if you Google pictures of them, you, you'll see what we're, we're talking about. And then the final symptom that happens kind of a few days into the disease process is that you get the same skin desquamation which is the peeling uh, and kind of like like skin peeling away from the fingertips and toes 
Let's talk about some differentials then, Simon. So skin peeling, rash, red tongue, fever. That could also be Kawasaki's disease, couldn't it? Yeah, as you said, uh, they can be quite overlapping conditions. So the differentials is something we really need to think about. So, yeah, Kawasaki's disease is definitely one of those differentials. So I would say one of the predominant features of Kawasaki's is that it's a fever that's gone on for over five days. So I think if we're kind of seeing this child on day two or three and they've got all the symptoms of scarlet fever, we should treat that. If then there was no improvement and we were kind of now on day six or seven, then, you know, we we need to start thinking about, okay, is this something else? You know, it's worth thinking about the cardinal symptoms of Kawasaki's. You know, one of them is conjunctivitis, which we've kind of said you don't get with scarlet fever often. So that might allude you kind of more to other considerations. We need to think about your common uh, viral exanthems. So, for example, erythema infectiosum, which is caused by paravirus B19 uh, and causes what we know as slap cheek that can give the kind of red facial rash with the perioral sparing area. Um, and it looks like a child's been slapped across both cheeks, hence its name. And that obviously can present similar, but again, you're more likely to get the coriza, the slow onset symptoms, the fever that then settles and then the rash develops. So there's, the history is really important because it kind of helps us guide towards the likelihood of one thing over another. Are you unlikely to get the rash elsewhere with slap cheek? Is it only on the face or can you get the rash elsewhere? Uh, unfortunately not. No, it, it does spread a lacy rash onto the chest as well um, in some children. So um, yeah, it, it can be really difficult to differentiate these uh, these from each other. I think a lot of us, to be honest, at the moment are just having a lower threshold to consider scarlet fever and to consider strep throat presentations. So something six weeks to two months ago i might have gone this is this is probably a viral illness have some supportive measures i might be a bit more inclined to give antibiotics to and and that's kind of unfortunately the world of medicine you know we have to um be able to adopt our practice depending on the needs of the time and you know change as we as we see things develop Along with other viral illnesses, we need to think about a viral upper respiratory tract infection. We kind of already talked earlier about the differentiation between those two, but they are still out there causing our snotty nose kids um, and adults alike, actually. And then finally, maybe in kind of our slightly older children, like adolescents, uh, we need to think about um, like mono, like infectious monoculosis uh, due to an Epstein-Barr virus. So this is a another condition that causes kind of sore throat and the child to be quite unwell. It can cause quite significant lymphadenopathy, so the swelling in the neck. Just a differential to kind of be aware of. So it's a viral infection, so it doesn't need antibiotics, but it actually does um, kind of knock people for sick. So one of the main symptoms is lethargy, and that lethargy can go on for quite a long period, kind of two to four weeks to recover, sometimes even months afterwards. Um, not so much uh, a rash with this one. So that's kind of one thing we can help use to differentiate. The most important thing about this is that we do a bit of an abdominal exam because we want to feel for splenomegaly. The reason we need to do this is because we need to advise anyone with glandular fever that they have to avoid kind of risk of injury to their spleen. So sports and things like that. Um, because there's a risk of splenic rupture while the spleen is enlarged. So um, that's another sign of kind of symptom that we kind of palpate and we can feel an enlarged spleen. 
Okay, so we've considered our differentials. Let's say we've got one of these patients who has a high centaur score or high fever pain score, or they've got scarlet fever. What do we need to do for them? Do they do they need to go to hospital? Because there's lots of scary stuff going around on the news. Yeah, so I was I was actually seeing one person on social media telling them that everyone needs to be called nine 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 and sent to A and E because it's really serious and. I was like, you know, actually, we've dealt with this in primary care for a long time. It's, you know, it's not it's not really necessary. So I think we need to come back to our assessment findings. So is there anything concerning on our assessment findings that would make us absolutely mandatory go to hospitals such as sepsis or, you know, non-blanching rashes, other red flags that we would normally look for anyway? If any of these are present, obviously, we're going to convey the child to hospital. If they are absent and we think we've got a strep throat or a scarlet fever, what the first thing we have to do is refer them on for antibiotic cover. So that can be done through whatever pathways you have locally. So, and this is something the primary care manage all the time. So if, the, if it's in hours, then refer to, you know, a GP or a primary care practitioner. Um, you can refer to the same in the out of hour service or an urgent care center. Or obviously if, if none of these services are available, then yes, emergency departments can manage these patients, but it's not necessarily that they have to go to A&E. They will need uh, a swab of the throat, which needs to be sent off and cultured to confirm that it is a strep A infection. And the reason we do that is because, as you alluded to at the start, Josh, is a notifiable disease through Public Health England. So we need to swab these patients and make sure that they go off for culture. Will you will you swab everyone, Simon? Because strep throat isn't a notifiable disease, is it? It's just scarlet fever. So we do tend to swab most strep throats, but the only ones that need to be notifiable to Public Health England are um, ones where we suspect scarlet fever. So if the clinician is suspecting of scarlet fever, then they will send um, a form off to Public Health England, and then Public Health England will chase the result of that swab as well. And obviously, if it's negative, they won't follow up. If it's positive, then they, they will obviously log that in their numbers and, and follow up appropriately. If it's strep throat, then, yeah, sometimes we culture it anyway, just because, you know, if there's antibiotic failure, we might want to see that. But, yeah, the strep throat itself doesn't need to be reported. It's just um, scarlet fever. It's not something that I would necessarily say that we need to do on the back of an ambulance because whoever you're referring them to to get the antibiotics should be doing this. So obviously the other avenue in your trust might be an emergency care practitioner or a specialist paramedic. Once we've done that, then obviously, as I said, the patient will need uh, a course of antibiotics. Now, normally this is phenoxymethyl penicillin or PenV, and that is normally prescribed uh, over a 10-day course or as an alternative, we could give erythromycin. So one of the problems we're finding at the moment is that uh, we've run out of penicillin because so many people have been presented with it and people are having a lower threshold. We've started to prescribe it significantly more. Um, so actually some places have run out of penicillin, so we're having to use alternatives. So that's just something to to keep in mind. If you know a patient's been seen in hours by a GP, they've been prescribed antibiotics and then they recall 111 because they can't get hold of those antibiotics and you end up being called, it might just mean that actually you just you know need to source some more antibiotics. And obviously, you know, if you are confident in your diagnosis, then actually maybe a patient doesn't need to see another practitioner at all. Maybe you could have a conversation with that practitioner over the phone. They could prescribe some antibiotics and, you know, a family member could get them from pharmacy. There's they, there's that avenue of managing it as well. I think the most important take-home point is that if you think that it's scarlet fever or you think there is strep throat, 
then further antibiotic therapy is a must. So, and we'll kind of talk about why it's a must when we look at some complications in a second. But the other things we need to do as well as get the antibiotics prescribed is we need to encourage that the patient um, drinks regularly, has plenty of fluids. Standard antipyretics, so you should paracetamol ibuprofen for pain, sore throat, you know, the, the symptoms related to temperature, but not necessarily the temperature itself. For children, we might want to consider, or for adults, to be honest, ice lollies because they're good for hydration, they're good for throat pain, they've got a bit of numbing quality because they're ice but they also taste nice and kids will take them over kind of water if they've got a bit of a sore throat and then we need to give worsening advice so what i tend to do is i print off the strep a and scarlet fever healthier together guide uh, and i provide this if i'm just managing a viral sore throat but it's early on and there's a possibility it could develop into a strep throat then i give the the other um healthier together guide which is kind of sore throat and tonsillitis uh, which then gives them the red flags to look out for so that they know to, to contact someone so kind of you've got two options there if you if you're pretty happy you're treating this as, as a confirmed case or or if you're not so sure but you know it's a watch and wait approach and you think this could turn into something else but it's not yet or it's looking like it's viral but you know just to cover for misdiagnosis you give them the the other form yeah that's what i was gonna gonna say then so should we if 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 we've got a low risk uh sore throat that we we think is unlikely to be strep throat would you still give the scarlet fever healthier together red flag advice uh no so i would then go for the sore throat and tonsillitis one which covers you know the development of strep throat symptoms and scarlet fever within it or worse than advice should be if you if there's deterioration in this condition or if the diagnosis is kind of wrong for common differentials which this healthier together advice does include so we'll, we'll put links to both of those in the uh, on the article um so that people can people can find them so finally then let's just discuss some complications so these are reasons that we want to give antibiotics we've discussed eye gas infections and and the progression of this disease but there's a there's a number of other complications that can occur despite antibiotics but uh, uh the likelihood can obviously uh, imagine be reduced by ensuring people get them in a, in a timely fashion so do you want to talk to us about some complications the first of which would probably be rheumatic fever yeah so rheumatic fever um is basically a complication of an an untreated group a strep infection which can affect approximately three percent of those patients that that are missed or untreated so three percent doesn't seem a lot but obviously that that's still quite relative risk that is only in un, untreated patients so basically the underlying mechanism of that is believed to be um if if we don't give antibiotics then there's production of antibodies which kind of damage and cause inflammation in our own tissues which can go to multiple places in the body but one of the most common is the heart and you end up with rheumatic heart disease which is basically valve defects which obviously then affects the child throughout uh, their life into adulthood because they end up with valvular heart disease it's something that we can easily treat with antibiotics so that's that's kind of one of the most common things that we need to give antibiotics for to prevent this risk of of rheumatic fever developing kind of two to four weeks after a group a strep infection other complications we need to think about is a strep a pneumonia so this is possible but it's quite rare normally when we talk about pneumonia there is another beta hemolytic bacteria called strep pneumoniae 
that is a much more common causative organism. Um, however, strep A can cause pneumonia. So again, we need to think about our chest signs for that. There can be development of an abscess in the throat. So that can either transform as a peritonsillar abscess or it can track back into the retropharyngeal spaces and give us a retropharyngeal abscess, both of which can have significant consequence. We can think about our severe skin infections, so necrotizing fasciitis, which although rare, is obviously a significantly um, serious disease process. So this is going to be unremitting severe pain in a cellulitis. Um, So we need to start looking for kind of other spread of infection. Uh, It's going to cause blistering, crepitus, severe swelling and high fever, and the patient's going to be really unwell with that. So that that crepitus is is air bubbles under the skin, isn't it? So it'll feel a bit like um, subcut emphysema, I guess, is where the the bacteria are producing uh, gas bubbles under the skin. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's something that we can see on on X-ray, but actually, yeah, when you clinically examine the patients, yeah, you can feel this kind of, they describe it as like a crisp packet, don't they? Like I always think of it as like a packet of quavers under the skin. That's the best definition I've ever personally felt. Um, kind of covers it. Mm, um, I think it feels more like Watsits, to be fair. But, I feel like it feels mm. more like Watsits. They always say it feels like uh, bubble Skips. wrap, but I've I kind of don't really feel like it feels like bubble wrap personally. It's always more like more like crisps in a foil packet. Uh, just my experience. Could be uh, could be complete complete tosh. And finally, the other complication that we can see is glomerulonephritis. And this is basically inflammation of the small blood vessels of the kidney, which occurs approximately two to three weeks post an original strep A infection. And the signs of symptoms of this include hematuria, blood in the urine, oliguria, which is reduced urine output, edema, which obviously is quite a significant finding in a child. It normally means there's something going on um, that we need to think about, and it's normally kidney related. We might get hypertension. We might get uh, another fever and then there'll be generalized malaise and a feeling of nausea. So it's always worth thinking if someone had a strep throat infection or scarlet fever kind of within the previous month and then they get a new illness, is is that a new illness or is this a complication of a previous group A strep infection? Okay, so let's summarize. Strep A is a species of bacteria responsible for a wide range of infections, but the most common of these are strep throat and scarlet fever. In the 22-23 strep throat season, we're seeing a higher number of infections, a higher number of notified scarlet fever presentations, and a higher number of invasive group A strep complications. Scarlet fever predominantly affects those between ages 2 and 8, with the highest peak around 4, but this is not exclusive to young children. We should suspect strep throat in patients with a high central score or fever pain scores, and they will likely have a rapid onset fever, sore throat, inflamed or purulent tonsils, and lymphadenopathy, and they're typically going to present without a cough. Patients with scarlet fever are likely to present with similar throat symptoms, and around 12 to 24 hours after these symptoms develop, will develop a pinpoint blanching rash with a sandpaper-like texture. We need to remember in patients with darker skin, we may not be able to see this rash as clearly. However, we're still going to be able to feel the sandpaper-like texture. There's some great resources to see this and other types of rashes and skin changes in patients with black and brown skin. So check out Mind the Gap and Brown Skin Matters that we've linked to on our website. 
For both conditions, we should refer them to a prescriber such as a GP with a view to a course of antibiotics. This is an important step in reducing the likelihood of developing invasive group A strep or IGAS. Additionally, these patients will also get a throat swab to confirm the presence of the bacteria. Finally, if we're discharging these patients, we need to give full and comprehensive discharge advice. The Healthier Together website offers evidence-based written examples to discuss through and leave with parents. Don't forget that strep A infections can result in a number of complications, from rheumatic fever to necrotizing fasciitis. We should consider these as differentials where appropriate when seeing patients with a history of strep throat or scarlet fever in recent months. But that's all for this month. Thank you very much for listening. As always, you can check out our references and further information in the article on the website. That's generalbroadcast.org.uk. There you can find our full back catalogue of other episodes. And if you're not subscribed to us, you need to ask yourself, why not? We've got some great content coming out for you this year. So subscribe to us on whatever podcatcher you're listening to us on currently. And we'll see you for the next episode in a month's time.